been in a First Peter series for a number of weeks now at our midweek service. Um, you know, when the Lord put First Peter on my heart many months ago, um, I was not thinking at that time uh, that we, we were going to develop a theology of suffering. Like that wasn't like, I was looking at it through the lens of like a living hope and an imperishable seed of God. But as we started to really study it and dig deeper into it, what we realized through going through this book is, is that that living hope is forged and formed when going through difficult circumstances. And the imperishable imperishable seed of the gospel is only imperishable when you realize everything else is perishable. And that's what you have to hold on to. And so this beautiful series has developed. It's been so encouraging to me. And we've just been walking through 1 Peter. And so the point in the book that we're in, Peter begins to turn his attention and speak about baptism. And it had been on our heart as a pastoral team just to, to do a special baptism service, just to celebrate and accentuate this moment. And so the Lord just lined it up for us. So I'm going to read this passage. I'll teach on this for a little bit. And then we're going to go into a great moment of celebrating baptisms tonight. Amen. Amen. Why don't you stand with me as we read the word of God. This is First Peter chapter 3. Verses 17 through 22. I'm going to pick up where Pastor JC left off last week. This is the word of the Lord. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers all having been subjected to him. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, meet us in this place. Lord, give us a revelation of your word, a revelation of your power, a revelation of your saving grace. God, I pray that the words of my heart and the meditation of my, words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing and acceptable to you tonight. Lord, grace us with your presence here, I pray. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that can understand what the Spirit of the living God is saying to us in this place tonight, I pray in Jesus' name. You say amen. Amen. You can be seated. So I love this transitional thought that we start with, where Peter goes, it is better to suffer for doing good, if it's God's will, than for doing evil. And this is what Pastor JC preached on last week. He called it the blessed suffering. Suffering that's blessed by God, which is to say it's better to suffer for the good you do than for the evil you do. Amen? Like you would rather have the consequences of your good deeds than your bad deeds. Am I right? Anybody? Okay. So so it is blessed to to suffer for doing good. And yet we know that the Bible has to admonish us not to ever grow weary in doing good. I wonder why that is other than that sometimes doing good can be wearisome. Like sometimes continually doing the right thing can be hard. 
And sometimes you even do the right thing with right intentions, and what you get back is a wrong response from somebody. And you're like, why, why, did I even, why even waste my time with that? Don't grow weary in doing good, for in due season you will reap a harvest. So, so Peter transitions this thought. He says, he says, just when you think that you're, you're too tired to keep doing good, just when you're growing weary of it, just when you're beginning to think, like, is pursuing righteousness worth it? Just when you're beginning to think, is purity worth it? Just when you're beginning to think, is reconciliation, is this relationship, is it even, is it even worth it? Just remember, Peter says, that Christ suffered as well. He suffered once for sins. He suffered. He, he went to the cross. He was beaten. He was tortured. The righteous, holy one, who never sinned, suffered for unrighteous sinners. You ever make a bad trade? <laughs> you ever do a bad deal, like make a bad swap? Growing up, I'm the youngest of four boys in my family, and, um, and I, I, they made, I made bad trades all the time growing up. I was taken advantage of, though, by my brothers. They would abuse me, man, because I was young, I was naive, I was highly impressionable, and I'm the smallest of all of them. And I kid you not when I tell you my brothers would trade me the natural things of earth for treasures in heaven. They would go like, like if it was my toy or my turn with a thing or, or whatever it was, but they didn't want it, which they, they wanted it. They would never let me have a turn. They, they, would, they would convince me that if I gave them what I had, God would give me everything I wanted. And that waiting for me in heaven would be the richest rewards, the coolest. I'm just saying, when I get to heaven, I'm going to have the full 90s Nintendo everything because my brothers promised me when I was seven, that's waiting for me in my mansion. I made a lot of bad trades growing up. I didn't know any better. I trusted them. They didn't have my best intention at heart. And so, you know, in some sense, I learned and I no longer, I like to think, at least I like to think I no longer make bad trades. Um, but you look at the exchange that Peter writes about here, the exchange that God makes with us. It's, it's not a great deal for him. It says he gives his righteousness for your unrighteousness. Let's just break this down for a minute and look at, look at what God gives up in this exchange. He gives up heaven, which he leaves to come to earth. He gives up all power and authority, which he lays aside. He doesn't lose it, but he sets it aside to become fully man. He gives up his immortal body for a mortal body with all of the pains and aches of humanity. I was getting some condiments out of the kitchen here at the church on Tuesday, and I bent down to get them, and I stood up, and I didn't hear myself make a noise, but the wonderful women who serve in hospitality did. And they said, you did not just groan bending down to pick up that ketchup. Now, I'm 36 years old. What business do I have moaning from sitting down and standing up other than I've got a mortal body like everybody else? And God says, I'm going to come in. I'm going I'm to get in one of those. Now, maybe the testimony of Jesus is he didn't, he, he didn't last till 36. So maybe he knew to get, get out before the body starts to die. <laughs> okay. That's fine. This is, what, this, is, this, this is what God gives up. This is what God gives up 
all of that. And what does he get? He gets ridiculed. He gets accused. He gets betrayed. He gets tortured. He gets a criminal's death on a cross. What do you get in the deal? You get the forgiveness of sins. You get eternal life with God. You get blessing on earth. You get the presence of God with you every day of your life, and you get to be called the righteousness of God. That's what you get. And all you have to give up is your pride over your life, humble yourself, and give up the leadership over your life. Submit your life to the one who made you, who loves you with an everlasting love, and knows what's best for you better than you think you do. That's, that's what you get. You get to safely entrust your life into the loving hands of a God who made you and knows what's best for you and, and has blessing in mind for you. Well, I'm just trying to say, it's not really a good deal for God. And it made me wonder why, what would compel him to make a trade that's so unbalanced? Because for me, the only time that I make that type of trade, a trade where I give up everything and I get nothing, and I make sure that the other person gets the best of everything, the only time I make that type of trade is when I make it with who? With one of my sons, with one of my children. And when you look at the scripture through that lens, you begin to realize why God would be so compelled and so motivated to make this unbalanced exchange, to exchange his righteousness for our unrighteousness. It's because your heavenly father, who calls you son and daughter, is not looking at this relationship in light of what he can get from you, but what he can give to you. And he's compelled to do it because he loves you and he wants to be close to you. So what it says, it says, it says, Christ suffered once for sins that he might bring us closer to God. I think it's so beautiful. The reason Jesus was willing to suffer and the reason he would make that exchange is because he came to bring you closer to the Father. So if you've got the type of theology that tells you that God is always mad at you or that God is disappointed in you, or that God is always punishing you for your bad deeds. I want you to reread this and remember that God is always trying to move us closer to him. God is not trying to put distance between you and him. He's trying to draw you near to him. Paul says it like this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. He says, now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been what? You've been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. I love this. Christ, through his blood, through his death, brings us near to God. Jesus now works as our peace, the one who makes reconciliation, who brings the two parties, us and God, back together again. He makes peace between us. He makes us one again, and he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Not only the one between us and God, but the dividing walls of hostility between you and me, and me and my family, and you and your friends. All these walls we put up relationally between each other through Christ, all of those walls fall. But namely, the biggest one is the one that we have between us and God. Let's go back to Sunday school for a minute. Class, what is the word we give the thing that separates us from God? Sin. Oh, come on, Grace, Grace kids in the house doing their work over there. 
And sin has taken root where? In our flesh. We call it our sin nature. It's just, it's within us. The Bible always uses this language for the non-redeemed, uh, non-spiritual side of ourselves, the sinful side. It's our, it's our flesh. Sin is just a manifestation of the flesh. It's a condition of our humanity. It is a part of who we are and what we do and how we operate. It is, it is the curse we have been born under since Adam and Eve. It's a part of of who we are, it is the one thing that keeps us apart from God. So it is the flesh that has to be dealt with. It's the flesh that has to be redeemed. And as Peter's unpacking this thought, he goes, you know, that, that actually kind of reminds me of, of Noah. You guys remember Noah? Of course we remember Noah, because Grace Kids is doing their work, because that's why we remember the story of Noah. Noah was God's man. He was a righteous man. The Bible says he was blameless in his generation, says that Noah walked with God. In other words, Noah was great. Noah was great. The earth, on the other hand, was terrible. It says the earth was corrupt and filled with violence. And one of the most distressing sentences and phrases in all of Scripture, at least for me, is when it says that God looks at humanity and he saw that they did only evil always. That was... That's God's diagnosis of humanity in the days of Noah. They do only evil continually. That is all that they do. So look at Genesis uh, chapter 6. Let me just read this. This is God's response. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. Peter's, Peter's writing about how Jesus was, was dead in the flesh to be made alive in the spirit. And he says, this is kind of like when God was waiting patiently for the people in Noah's day, waiting for them to turn, to repent, to, to follow him, and they didn't. Remember Noah? Remember when God said the best thing that I can do in this environment when the world is filled with corruption, the best thing that I can do is, is destroy all flesh. You know how bad it has to be for God to say something like that. So God determines he's going to deal with the flesh by making an end to all flesh. Well, not all flesh. Not all flesh. Because God always preserves a remnant. God always saves a few. God always finds those who are after his will, who are called by his name, who are submitted to him, those who chase after him, those who love him. He always finds those and, and preserves them. So he says to Noah, no, I'm going to make a covenant with you and your family. I'm going to preserve you and you will be saved from the outpouring of my wrath on the sin of the earth. You will be saved. And so God sets out to cleanse the earth from evil, from wickedness, and from sin. And he does it just like you would cleanse anything that you need cleaning. He does it by washing it. He sends the waters of judgment to wash clean anything that was unrighteous. And what does he do with Noah and the family? The remnant that's re that remains, he delivers them through the waters. 
So the same water that comes to eradicate evil, to wash away sin, to cleanse the earth, is the same water God uses to deliver Noah and his family through to the other side. And I kind of, I don't know, Noah is sometimes like this cute animal story. Two by two and... I read my son Judah. He's got his first Bible stories book. We read it most nights, and he loves the Noah story because we look at all the animals and we name them. And it's a very cute story, except that you realize that, like, it is terrifying. Sometimes I read it and I go, like, God, why, why, why didn't you just relocate Noah? Why don't you just, it's like, come with me to a new land. We're going to leave all them jokers over there. You come with me. We'll start over, o- over here, New Garden of Eden. We'll, we'll, we'll just do it right this time. Like, like why didn't God just, just separate Noah? <laughs> and I think it speaks to the character and the desire of God at a broader scale than just what was occurring with Noah. Because I do not believe that God just wants to separate you from your sin. He wants to wash you completely clean of it. He's not satisfied with just putting your sin over there so you can still see it and look at it and worry about it and be afraid of it. He wants to wash you of it. So seriously, God takes sin. He looks at the earth, evil being done always, and going, I'm not satisfied with that. I got to deal with it completely. The thing that separates us from God is sin that resides in the flesh, and God is a God who desires us to be near to him. Let me tell you one more story that I love, Old Testament story. See, if you look at the Old Testament with New Testament perspective, you begin to see it all differently. So you know the story of the Israelites. Uh, They were enslaved in Egypt 300 years. Uh, God's chosen people, they came in through Joseph. They multiplied. Pharaoh didn't like that. There's too many of them. So he enslaved them all, put them to work. Moses, who is born and and raised, he's born a Hebrew, raised in, uh, in Egyptian, is put in place to deliver God's people, the 10 plagues of Egypt. I'm just catching us up. It's grace kids. You know, we're having a good time. Finally, Pharaoh says, that's it. Go, get out of here, leave. The Hebrews go, millions of them. They head out. Soon as they get out of town, Pharaoh changes his mind. He sends his army after them. They meet at the Red Sea where God uses Moses to part the waters. The Israelites begin to walk through the waters. And then what happens? Pharaoh and his army follow them into the waters where God closes the waters on them and washes them away. Now again, God with the water and the destroying people. Why? Why didn't God just... Like, he's sovereign. Why didn't in his timing just have the, the Egyptians, like, run late so that the Israelites could get to the other side, just close up the Red Sea? Now there's a body of water between you and them, and you don't have to worry about them. Life is preserved. Because, again, God is not just doing one thing in one moment. He's telling a story through all of Scripture, through all of time. And what God is pointing to through that story, I believe, is the testimony that the things that once held you in bondage, God is not interested in separating you from them. He is letting you know he is eradicating them completely. The things that once held claim over your life, that once kept you locked up, God is saying, my, by my power, I'm erasing that from the ledger. It no longer has a claim over your life because I have dealt with it completely. The the Egyptians no longer chase you. I've dealt with them. God uses the water in the Old Testament to eradicate sin, to preserve his people, and to deliver them. 
And Peter is saying, this is what baptism corresponds to. A God who is working to administer his saving grace to people. And some will hear it and respond like Noah. Others would hear it and refuse like Pharaoh. And for those who hear and respond, God delivers them through the redeeming waters that cleanse evil from the earth and preserve the chosen people of God. I'm just saying the Old Testament goes hard when you read it with a New Testament perspective. So verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. So here's what baptism definitely isn't, and the Bible is clear. It definitely isn't an actual washing of dirt or an actual washing of sin off of you, right? Jesus' atoning death on the cross was the thing that paid the price for your sin. And your faith in him, marked by your repentance, your turning from following yourself and following your flesh to follow Jesus being led by the Spirit, that is the thing that redeems you. It buys you back to God. It's the way that God redeems your soul and redeems your life that allows you to walk into the forgiveness of God and eternal life with him. That's the thing that deals with your sin. Jesus' blood on the cross. Not the waters of baptism, but what are the waters for? And this same Peter who's writing this preached what I like to call the first gospel message in Acts 2 after Jesus resurrected and ascended. And he's preaching to the Jewish brothers there and he's describing uh, who Jesus is and what he's done and how he fulfills the Old Testament. And, and he's just establishing Christ as the Messiah. And he's doing this in this beautiful and profound way that the brothers who hear, it says they were cut to the heart. And they respond, what should we do now? What do we do? And Peter says in Acts 2, 38, common scripture, he says, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when you heard the gospel, when you heard the good news of Jesus Christ, were you cut to the heart? Was there a moment in time where you had a revelation from the Holy Spirit of who Jesus was? You were confronted with your sin. You recognized your need for a savior. Some internal transaction occurred between you and God. Was there a moment where God changed you and revealed himself to you? My question is, what is the evidence of that? How do we know that that happened in your heart? What testifies to the internal transformation. Because if we're honest, talk is cheap, right? We all have that friend who says they'll show up and then doesn't. Who says they'll be there for you, who says they'll deliver the thing and then does. I've been that person far more often than I care to admit. I was that person today. I was in a meeting promising people I'd be there tomorrow and Shelly, who's my EA, was on that meeting and she goes, he's writing checks he can't cash. He's not available tomorrow. <laughs> that happened today. <laughs> so talk is cheap. It's easy to say. It's easy to say. It's harder to do. It's harder to walk through the commitment of what, of what that means. So what is the evidence that the gospel of Jesus settled into your heart and changed you? And I believe the evidence comes from what your response to God is. Paul or Peter says, says baptism is an appeal to God for a good conscience 
That word appeal, it's my Greek word, we're at midweek, we're going to do some Greek words, epirotema, epirotema. It's an appeal. It is the ask or it is the inquiry. It is what you are asking God for in response to what you've heard he has done. It is how you are now responding. It is the appeal, or as I like to say, it is the cry of your heart. That when you hear the gospel message, when you're cut to the heart, and this desire springs up within you, and you have an epirotema, you have an appeal to God, saying, God, I no longer want to be defined by what I was, by my past sins. I no longer want to be in bondage to sin. Like, I'm tired of living that way. I no longer want to have this guilty conscience all the time of who I was, how I've acted, and what I've done. God, can you cleanse me, wash me, and make me new again, Lord, What I'm asking for is you to save my soul. Lord, that is my appeal to you. That I might have a conscience that is redeemed, that is purified. And how do we, what is the process called when a part of you dies and another part of, so that another part of you can live? That's a weird way to ask my question just to get to the point, which is, we call that resurrection. When one thing dies so a new thing can live. So Paul talks about this. The, the old has passed away. Behold, the new thing has come. And the appeal, the cry of our heart is that the person I was, how I used to be, would no longer exist anymore. It says Jesus died in the flesh so that he might be made alive in the spirit. Do you know he did that so that you could do it? That there could be a part of your flesh that dies So that you and the spirit would be made to new life. This is the regeneration of your spirit. It is the thing that secures you eternity in heaven with God. And when we come to hearing the gospel and making an appeal to the Lord, what we're saying is I want Jesus' resurrection for myself. This is the fullest picture of what baptism is, is it not? It mirrors Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. So it's not that you go in a sinner and you get washed by the holy water that we've like prayed for. No, 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 no. But it is communicating to the body of Christ, because the Bible also says that you are baptized into the body of Christ. So why baptism isn't a singular solitary moment. That's why you don't baptize yourself, right? You understand? So why baptism here is a corporate moment for us because the people who go into the waters come up into the body, into us. They join us as a part of the church. And so what we're saying is in this, in this moment that the cry of my heart is to be like Jesus, to be resurrected, to be made new, to be made whole, to be like Christ, and to now walk in the new thing. It is that inward appeal It is the inward cry that manifests itself in outward action. This is the moment that we celebrate. It's rich with meaning and significance. It's one of two sacraments that Christ leaves to us to remember him and to partner in a physical act in what the gospel actually uh, means. We get baptism and we get communion. We get the point at which the old is gone and the new has come. And we get this reminder of Christ's death. In Galatians 2, Peter 
Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. And I think here in 1 Peter, Peter's saying, and I've been raised with him. I've been raised with Christ. And I testify that in a moment like this. Our passage concludes and then we're done here. It says, Jesus has gone to heaven, this resurrected Jesus, he who has gone to heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers, all having been subjected to him. The beauty of this passage for me is it ends with this affirmation of Christ's authority over all things. That Jesus is seated in heaven. All rulers, all powers, all authorities, all are subject to King Jesus. That means we have victory here on earth. That means we enter this moment with rejoicing and every day with celebration because the one who was and is and always will be is seated in heaven, enthroned with all authority, dominion, and power.